you'd open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, that will be the main text that we will be focusing on this morning. We have been working through the book of Acts in a series that we've called Empowered. Considering what life, faith, and hope look like for somebody who has believed in Jesus Christ. That we aren't just a social club. We're not just a gathering of people with common realities and common experiences who look just to get together, but we have been given life. We've been given meaning. We've been given purpose. We've been given mission that Jesus instilled on us and gave us nearly Every week we've put before you Acts 1-8, and we'll continue that theme for a long time. It is the theme and the structure for the book of Acts. It reads this way. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It says you will receive power, and that was just as true for the disciples as it is for you. Ephesians 1.13 testifies that to you, that it's true for you, that you receive power, that you've received the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, that once you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe, it testifies that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit and that you've received power. That's why we've called this whole series Empowered. Not merely because the disciples were empowered, but specifically because you are. Each and every one of you that knows Jesus Christ and claims Him for salvation, you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we need to be encouraged. We need to be exhorted. And we need to be challenged by the faith lived out in the book of Acts Not because these men were awesome. Not because they had all of their stuff together. Not because they were born into the right family or any other silly excuse we could come up with. No, these men lived out their faith not on their strength, but on His. Not in their power, but in His. Not for their reputation, but for His. You find that these were simple men who believed in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit and lived empowered lives. So as we open chapter 8 this morning, I remind you from Acts 1-8 that Jesus foretold that the gospel would go out into Jerusalem and to all Judea and Samaria. And so when we reach chapter 8, the church and and the book both shift from Jerusalem as their focus to Judea and Samaria. That happens starting in Acts 8.1. And it happens in reaction to the stoning of Stephen, a text we covered a couple of weeks ago. And the text tells us that those who opposed the followers of Christ, including Saul, who would become Paul, if you didn't know that, Paul wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a disciple. In fact, Paul spent quite a long season persecuting the church long before he ever came to know Christ. He didn't have a Christian pedigree. He had an incredibly Jewish pedigree. And so when we hear these persecutions this week and over a couple more weeks, know that Paul was incredibly involved in that, that he increased the persecution of the church, causing the church to spread out. Acts 8.1 tells us, and Saul, this is Paul, approved of his execution, again talking about Stephen, 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now I give all of that to you because that's the background to the story of Philip who we're going to lean into for the next couple of weeks. That when we come to Philip, you get a guy who goes to Samaria, not primarily because he has a huge gospel burden in his heart, but because persecution built up. And he was required to flee Jerusalem in order to save his life, in order to save his family, in order to save his business. You, these guys would have lost everything. This is where you got to lean in on the text a little. When people leave because of persecution, it's not this happy, thrilled moment. It's not a mission-filled moment. And yet, what did they do with this loss, with this tragedy? Verse 4 testifies for us. And those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. Literally, in Greek, they shared the good news everywhere they went. We preached through that text last week. And now Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, by the way, reminder, Luke also not a disciple. Luke, a Gentile, a follower of then Paul. You start to see how this story seems itself together that Paul is persecuting the church, later becomes a believer, leads a guy to Christ whose name will be Luke. Luke starts writing to encourage other believers. That's how all this comes together. Luke records all of this. Luke gives us a generic and specific example now of the gospel going forth to the Samaritans. Now I want you to know as we tackle Acts 8, 4 through 25, there are probably six good ways to preach this text. There are six ways, in, and that's a literal number by the way, six huge implications going on here. And there's part of me that wants to take six weeks and look at it from every angle, but I will save you a little bit of boredom. We're going to lean in on one because I think it's crucial for us to see because one of the major things that happens in this text is that Luke begins to draw some pretty strong contrasts for us. And in fact, he's going to point out to us three different testimonies for us, which to be brief, I will summarize as in, out, and lukewarm. So these are the testimonies he puts before us in the book of Acts. So let's start with N. Verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Remember, he came there because the church had been persecuted. He left everything. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had him, had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there were much, there was much joy in that city. So we have Philip. He's our first testimony. He's clearly in Christ. Again, we could go back to the Ephesians 1.13 verse. It's a Great verse to, to memorize, to have in your repertoire because it tells us that we are in Christ when we have believed in Him and we are sealed with the Spirit. That's what it means to be 
in Christ. It's a crucial phrase for us to appreciate, for us to lean into, for us to understand. In fact, even our vision statement of the church testifies to being in Christ. We are a community in Christ. We would know what it means to be in Christ, to find our identity in and through Him. We get that by believing, and you see that in the life of Philip, who flees increasing persecution, and yet when he lands in Samaria, his testimony isn't the hardship he endured or its challenges, though that may have and probably was part of it. No, Luke testifies that his testimony was Christ. And in fact, had to be the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 6. The crowds paid attention to what was being said. They listened to Him. They watched Him. Several times we've testified to this, that as believers are called to suffer, and we will in our lives. It's a fact. At some point, for some reason, be it a family life struggle, be it health reasons, be it any number of other situations, you'll be called to suffer. It's part of the human experience. But what sets Christians as unique in that is that we have a great and a tremendous hope such that our suffering should not be our identity, but Christ should be. And I think that's what's significant about Philip walking into Samaria. That's why they paid attention to him. Because here's a guy who should have been belly aching, who should have been whining, who should have been complaining, and yet he shows up testifying to Jesus Christ. They paid attention to him. They listened to him. They watched him. Friends, when you go through hardship and struggles and trials, the world is watching. They want to know your words. They want to know your actions. And they want to know if the Jesus you believe in is enough to stand on. That's what the world wants to see when we suffer. Is this faith that we proclaim enough to stand on? You know, it's one thing to score a touchdown and win the Super Bowl and be like, Jesus is enough! Well, of course He is. You just scored a touchdown and won the Super Bowl. But when you're on your deathbed, dying of cancer, is Jesus still enough to stand on, or did you give it up because it got inconvenient? See, that's what the world wants to see from us. It's part of the purpose and the theology of suffering in the believer's life. Is that Jesus Christ is sufficient. He is enough. And so when Philip gets to Samaria... He testifies to that. He's bold for Christ. He has a powerful testimony. He testifies and proclaims. And the text says, unclean spirits came out of people and the sick were healed. There's a outflow of the Spirit that brings things about. In uh, 2007, I sat in a class at Dallas Theological Seminary on angels, demons, and the other world. We had a long conversation about spiritual exorcisms. I only say this. If you ever come across an evil spirit, you'll know it. If you ever lean into that and study that, it's it's not a missable fact. There aren't too many cases where you walk up and go, I don't know about this guy. 
And in fact, they pointed us to a pamphlet that was put out by the Roman Catholic Church in the 40s that confirmed whether or not somebody was spiritually possessed. It included such things as levitation, glowing. Do you see what I'm saying? If you come across a guy who's floating, you go, this is not of this world. So don't ever worry that you're going to miss that. It's evident and obvious. There's loud voices. There's it, it, It's just an experience you won't miss. And so Luke leans into that and testifies to Christ because he was enough, not just for the spiritually needy, but for the really, really out there crazies. Jesus was enough. Listen to Jesus' own words from the Gospel of John. Jesus, in John 6.35, says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus isn't talking here about literal hunger. He's talking about an internal need you have to be, to be fed, to be provided for. And Jesus says, I'm that. That's His enoughness in play. Jesus will fill you with something you've never been filled with before. John 8, 12, Jesus again speaking says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus testifies that you're not hopeless without a path. He says, I'm the light. I will give you a journey. I will light your path before you so you have some sense of direction. He provides for us. He's enough. Again, in John 10, 7 through 10, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Three thoughts. One, Jesus acknowledges there's a contrast to be had between the world and what is found in Christ. And what Jesus has for you is not only life abundantly, but also rest. He has a pasture for you, a, a place for you to find peace, to find rest that the world cannot offer. See, this is the Jesus that Philip knew. He was walking with Christ. Jesus was enough for him. He was sufficient. So that when the water rose, when the storm started, when his foundation got challenged, indeed when he lost everything... Jesus was his testimony. But that's not the only testimony in Samaria. In fact, Luke gives us another testimony, a a worldly testimony, this time about a man named Simon. Let's look at verse 9. And there was a man named Simon who'd previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. You should see the contrast immediately. Philip, 
much like John the Baptist points at Jesus. Simon points at himself. Jesus, or excuse me, Philip performs miracles that point to Jesus. Simon performs tricks that point to himself. It's a good reminder for us that in all times and in all situations, we're pointing at something. We have to ask the question, what are we pointing at? Am I declaring the sufficiency of Jesus Christ? Or am I declaring the sufficiency of me? Am I declaring my greatness? And that's a hard and a challenging and a daily question we got to wrestle with. Because I'll be frank with you, having studied through this passage this week, I got slammed with, man, I'm exalting Ben again. Why? Why am I doing this? It's a reality for all of us. We're so tempted into a Simon life where we want people to think we're great and that we can do cool tricks. Friends, it's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. That's the primary difference between Philip and Simon. That's the contrast we're supposed to see. Simon exalted himself. He pointed at himself. The text says that he practiced magic. Literally, that he practiced sorcery. You need to know this is not the stuff of card tricks and pulling rabbits out of hats, but literally the ability to control or exercise control over people by the use of demonic forces. That's what's at hand here. And we like to downplay the spiritual realms around us, but that's what happens when we exalt ourselves. We push back on Jesus. Simon was gaining attention for himself and probably a pretty good living. And Luke draws a contrast before us between these men, their actions, their focus, and their aim. And Simon is clearly the testimony for the one who is not in Christ. He's the testimony of the one who's out. And it highlights the differences between he and Philip. So you've seen Simon, you've seen Philip. Let's look for a third testimony, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, this is talking about the crowd, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. You see a contrast in their acts. Simon garnered praise for himself. Philip preaches the good news. It was not about a performance. It was about a kingdom. He preached salvation in Jesus Christ. And the people weren't entertained. They were converted. They saw in Jesus the need to repent, the need to confess, and the hope of everlasting life. You don't get a show. You get life. And the people believed and they were baptized, both men and women. And you'd find as you lean into the text that the right response to belief in the New Testament is always baptism. It's to take the step to publicly identify yourself with Jesus Christ. 
It's to identify with His death and going under the water, symbolic of the fact that all of your sin is paid for. It's being raised out of the water, symbolic of His resurrection and the new life you are walking into. Now as you see this work of Philip's ministry pointing at Jesus, consider this. Persecution was still growing. And the Samaritans had to know it. We looked at the verse last week, Paul testifies in Galatians, that he went to far off places seeking people to throw in jail. The Samaritans had to know, and yet people are still identifying with Jesus Christ with a full well knowledge that it could cost them absolutely everything. Church, you need to know this still happens in the world today in places like Somalia and Saudi Arabia and Central Asia and North Korea and Vietnam and places you wouldn't even think are on the list. As of this morning, there are currently 53 countries graded as experiencing high levels of persecution. Ten of them are experiencing extreme levels of persecution. Meaning that if you want to identify with Jesus Christ at all, it's going to literally cost you everything. By the way, that comes from Open Doors USA, a ministry that tracks worldwide persecution. It's not just a first century testimony. And yet there's something there about the transforming power of Jesus Christ that even when it costs you everything, not only will you claim His name, but you'll identify Him. You identify yourself with Him. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. I'll have to weigh into this word believe earlier because it doesn't necessarily mean to believe in a salvific way. It just means he acknowledges. Simon wants to join the crowd. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. What the text says is that Simon believed, and that gives us a third testimony. What we'll soon see is a lukewarm testimony. Someone who is half in and half out. And we're going to spend some more time with that in a minute, but in the next four verses, Luke gives us an important interlude that we've got to pay attention to because of the six other things I could have preached. This is about four of them. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now you should immediately pick up that this is not the normal means in the New Testament already that the church has started in the book of Acts and people are believing and that the disciples receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But after that, when you believe, you receive. So this is an important interlude because it's got large theological considerations that matter. Because here... The believers believed and then later received the Holy Spirit, so we have to ask the question, why? Is this a normal event? Or is this atypical? Why did it happen this way? And I'd love to take longer to build it up for you, but this is 
what I want to submit to you this morning. That this is an extraordinarily and an atypical event. Because you will remember at this point that the gospel had mainly gone out to Jews. Remember Acts 1.8, it goes to Jerusalem. All the disciples were Jewish. And if you put that together with the fact that Jewish people had a lot of disdain for Samaritans, let me change my language. They hated them. Let me change it again. They were extraordinarily racist. That matters, doesn't it? And it certainly matters in our country and in our context now. The Jews were extraordinarily racist. They thought the Samaritans were false worshippers. They called them half-breeds. This issue will come up again in the book of Acts. Is the gospel for everyone, or is it just for the Jews? Let me ask it more plainly. Is it just for me and people like me, or is it for everyone? Thank you. Because we got to wrestle with that, do we not? Is it just for me, or is it for everyone? Is it for the weird people? Is it for the different people? Is it for... What does it look like? Because church, if it's for everyone, we ought to look a lot different, shouldn't we? Everyone ought to be represented here. This was the consideration at hand. And so, I believe, and frankly, most conservative Christians of academic pursuits agree with me, easy place to stand, that this is a special sign that's given. That when the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples at Pentecost, it confirmed God's presence with them. And in this moment, you see the Holy Spirit confirming Samaritans as coming to Christ in a significant way. In a way that stood before Peter and John. And I can only imagine in this moment that it was just as powerful for Peter and John as it was for the Samaritans. For them to look out and to go, wait a second, these guys who are so different than us, these guys we've hated our whole lives, these guys we've avoided our whole lives, these guys get the Holy Spirit too? These guys are our brothers. And who better to testify to the whole church than Peter and John? That what we've believed our whole life, this tradition we've held on to is fake, phony, and stupid. That the gospel is for everybody. This is the only time we see this means of the Holy Spirit going out in this way, which is to say it's not normal if you've got the question. It was for the purpose to authenticate the Samaritans as no longer false worshipers, but true believers and true brothers. I think it was pretty impactful on Peter and John. We'll lay, lean into this again in the life of Peter later on. But in verse 18, we return back to Simon. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon saw a power that he didn't have a power that he wanted. And you start to see the true colors of Simon start to show. 
Here's a guy who'd made his living performing magic. And all of a sudden, he sees the tide shift. The people start to believe in this Jesus character. And they're doing real things. And Simon wants to be a part of it. So he leans into community and begins to walk with them. Friends, that's a third testimony. One that of someone who walks into fellowship but doesn't believe. You see that. It's one who desires the benefits, who desires the claims, who desires the power with no real understanding of who Jesus is. Friends, we have to get our minds around this. Jesus didn't come to make us happy. He didn't come to make us comfortable or wealthy. He didn't come to love you fully so that you could do whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, however you wanted, regardless of what He has to say to you. Jesus didn't come to give you your best life now, reference intended. You see this early on in this church that false prophets walk in and begin to declare a false gospel and the church stands up and says, no, we cannot tolerate this. Do you appreciate that we live in a day and a time and an age where if the church says no to anybody, we're judgmental? Not standing on truth? The church has a right and a responsibility to look at things and say, that's false belief. Your hope is not in Jesus. Your hope is not in a true salvation. Your hope is in the benefits of it. It's possible we have people amongst us. Probably probable, right? That there are folks here who are claiming fire insurance. I believe in Jesus because I don't want to go to hell. That our hope is that somebody put before us, well, you can believe in Jesus or go to hell. What do you think? Hmm. Well, I'll take Jesus. Hell's not a great option. With no real belief. Jesus Christ came to earth and died on a cross and rose on the third day because we were stuck in our sin And we are completely separated from the love of the Father with no hope and with no God in the world. We didn't need to be better. We were dead. We needed to be raised from the dead. We needed to be given new life. This is what Saul, who persecuted the church, would later write in Ephesians 2. Listen to this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which is at work in the sons of disobedience. Hear this. Because the world doesn't testify to this. Sin exists, and we're all guilty of it. All of us. I'm first. Don't think it's you. I'm not judging you. I'm declaring truth among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the world around us. I don't point that out so that we could judge them. We're not supposed to stand in judgment that way. 
but so that we can speak truth, so that we can love Him. Because in verse 4, Paul writes an extraordinary statement that while we're stuck in our selfishness, in our me-self, me-exalting world, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's not a picture of happiness or wealth or contentment. That's a picture of salvation and union with our Father. Verse 7, purpose statement. So that, why did He save you? In the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Unpack that. He wants to show His grace through you. Which is to say, it's not going to be your sufficiency on display. It's going to be Christ's sufficiency on display. That He'll be made to look incredibly merciful because He used smucks like you and me. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We're not in a holy club. We don't get to look down on people. We didn't accomplish anything. He did. We proclaim a risen Savior who came and saved us out of our muck and mire and sin and struggle. Not of our work, but of His. Verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why? Because God saves us, redeems our image, and sends us back out to testify to the one in whom true salvation can be found. And not false salvation. Simon completely misunderstands the gospel. He gets it all wrong. He thinks it's all benefits. And Peter steps in and says, no! Verse 20. Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. By the way, that's not like you've sinned. That's like you're lost. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing you have said could happen upon me. Simon could have had a fourth testimony. Simon might have had a fourth testimony. We don't know. Could be somewhere in this that Simon turns to Jesus Christ in a saving, salvific way that's not Simon-focused, but is Jesus Christ-focused. We don't know. The text ends with Peter and John preaching throughout Samaria. Why? Because God had changed their hearts too. They now saw that everyone needed the Gospel. 
they go out and they preach. So as we look at this text, Luke uses some powerful contrast before us to highlight three testimonies. He puts before us Philip, who believed in Jesus, who believed in the sufficiency of Jesus, who believed in that Jesus was enough even to carry him through heavy and intense persecution that he could proclaim Christ. And the text puts before us Simon, a man full of himself, who exalts himself, who lived for himself. And then a second picture of Simon, who claims belief, not for salvation, but for benefit. We see a picture of true belief, a picture of no belief, and we see a picture of false belief. If you prefer, we see a true testimony for Jesus, a self-exalting testimony for self, and a false testimony for Jesus. Church, we're surrounded by all three all the time. And while it's crucial, it's crucial that we see the later Ephesians 2 that the wall of hostility has been broken down, that the Gospel is for all of us. It's also crucial that we understand who Jesus is and what He accomplished and we at least step into the reality of, do I believe in Jesus for salvation? Because I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that He paid the price for my sin, and so I want to believe in Him that I could step into eternal life and walk in unity with the Father forever. It's crucial that we wrestle with that. Or if I believed in Him, because I like to have a social gathering. I like having a place where I feel like I belong or a place where I have some friends. I just needed some people to fellowship with. I need something to do on Sundays. Went to a Baptist college. Didn't know I was Baptist before I got there. I was humored by the my Sunday morning experiences because there were three groups of people on our campus. There are people who woke up early and dressed up to go to church. The people who woke up late, got dressed up and acted like they went to church. And then there's the people who didn't care. You find the same thing in the text. Don't just act like you're going through the motions. There's too much at stake. There's just too much at stake. And to be fair, it's not me loving you to tell you that going through the motions is okay. In fact, it's me loving you to tell you that if you've not seriously considered the claims of Jesus Christ and the implications on your life, that you might fall in one of the later two groups. And you should take a serious inventory on that. We need to be confronted by that. And I think that's part of Luke's purpose in this text of putting these stories before us. I'm trusting Jesus for salvation because I know I'm hopeless and I want to exalt Him. Or do I somehow think I'm going to benefit from this and He's going to make me better and more successful? America's filled with the latter. We're filled with the latter. Of people who come here for benefit 
and not for belief. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. In it, we find hope. In it, we find encouragement. In it, we find rebuke and exhortation. Father, it is my hope this morning that we would find hope and peace and love in Jesus Christ. That we'd find salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, if there's anyone amongst us who's bought into easy believism, who's bought into Jesus for my benefit, Jesus for the exaltation of me, Father, would you confront them for that? For someday they will stand before you and have to bear testimony. Not a public testimony where we can just say what we think, but a testimony where God the Father sees our hearts and knows where we are. Father, I don't stand here and proclaim this because I'm good. I don't stand here and proclaim this because I'm awesome. I stand here and proclaim this as a broken sinner who knows that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. That's true for any and all of us. We've got no place to stand in judgment, only to point to the one who saves us in a real way. Father, we give thanks for Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.